Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical, underage sale prohibited. Introducing Zone Nicotine Pouches, the perfect balance of unparalleled comfort, longer-lasting flavor, and nicotine that satisfies. Whether you're zoning in during the race or zoning out after a tough day at work, Zone gets you there faster and keeps you there longer. Available in seven flavors and in six and nine milligram strengths. Find Zone at zonepouches.com and retailers near you. Own your Zone with Zone Nicotine Pouches. The following is a production of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. They are going crazy in Michigan as Junior is looking for the checkered flag. Dale Earnhardt Jr. is a hell of a guy. He's a guy that, that I look up to. Dale Earnhardt Jr. has won the Daytona 500 for the second time. Congrats to Junior. The world is right right now. Dale Jr. just won the Daytona 500. The Motor Racing Network presents Junior's Journey. Every time he comes by, the fans give a hearty cheer and a fist pump as Junior continues to lead. People adore him because he is just such a unique, real, down-to-earth person. I'm just a pilot, man. You know, I just want everybody to be happy. I want to do good. And, and uh, hopefully all of my dad's fans enjoyed this. This is for all them. From the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Susie Armstrong. Welcome to Junior's Journey, a new series of podcasts on MRN, a 10-week ride through the life, career, and off-track antics of NASCAR's most popular driver, Dale Earnhardt Jr. With three generations of Earnhardts competing in every decade since NASCAR's inception, the family name is legendary in the USA. It is an American success story, one that begins nine generations ago in a tiny German hamlet. Uh, for the most part, um, our hearts were wagon makers um, back in the 1700s, 1800s. They uh, were Lutherans in Germany in a very small town called Illesheim, and uh, they traveled to uh, Pennsylvania in the mid-1700s. Made, uh, you know, had a couple generations around uh, Pennsylvania around that time uh, that eventually moved down to the Salisbury, North Carolina area and sort of branched out between Salisbury and, and, and Kannapolis and, and you know it's just uh, I had some uh, family members in, that, that fought in uh, the wars. Fast forward to the latter 20th century and Ralph Dale Earnhardt Jr. was born in 1974 to father Dale and mother Brenda. That following year Dale Earnhardt Sr. launched his illustrious stock car racing career and the Earnhardt household was forever changed. As the 70s wound to a close, Junior's mom and dad divorced, and the five-year-old adjusted to his new life, heavily influenced by his mother. She was uh, from a racing family. Obviously, I loved the sport when I was a little kid, so I was so lucky to have it on both sides of my family. Uh, my parents split up when I was really young, but no matter where I was, I was around a race car. She's uh, got a great sense of humor and um, very sarcastic, and I really appreciate that. Just a ton of fun to be around. You you know, if you want an honest opinion and you want the truth, even if you don't want to hear it, you, your mom's the best person to go to to get it. She doesn't have a filter, and she'll steer you down the right path every time. Reflecting on Junior's early years, Mother Brenda notes how the young man and his older sister, Kelly, were polar opposites. Dale Junior growing up, he was really a good boy. Entertained himself constantly, never wanted to go anywhere. He was a little homebody, liked to live off of um, breakfast cereal. But he, he, was, he was a good boy. Him and Kelly, their personalities are totally different. She had to be constantly entertained. And um, 
So the it was it was a nice little balance, really. But I, he was all he was very little in size wise when he was growing up. Um, I think one summer when he got about 16, maybe it was, he just shot up. I, I thought he was just going to be a little squirt all his life. Hated school. Oh, he was he was terrible at school. I guess so thankful this racing career did work out because he didn't want he like he he said before he didn't really want to work for a living. <laughs> he didn't want to go to school, but he he was a he was a good kid. Very quiet and. Um, somewhat of an introvert. For Dale Jr. and Kelly, their young lives in the famous racing household were electrifying, but quality family time was rare. For us, it was um, a lot of sacrifice in terms of family time, and, you know, we weren't the typical family that um, got to sit down to dinner together at, you know, the end of the day and figure out and discuss what was going on, or um, we stayed with a lot of relatives and nannies and things like that on the weekends when our dad traveled and Teresa traveled, so, um, uh, as it related to sort of the fanfare about my dad, you know, we were either really loved when we were in school or we were really hated when we were in school. You know, my dad had a love-hate relationship with a lot of people, so um, those fans out there. So, um, you know, sometimes we we were treated really well, and then sometimes we were talked about with without people really, you know, knowing who we were, understanding who we were, just because, you know, they didn't like what my dad did on the racetrack to somebody or something like that. So, um, you know, a lot of different things, but it but it was fun, and we got to do a lot of cool things, um, you know, that, that he got the opportunity to do, and we always got the opportunity to tag along or experience something, um, you know, that, like, we met Tom Cruise, you know, who gets to do that as kids, you know, when he was working on Days of Thunder, you know, I can remember standing in the shop with Tom Cruise and not really knowing who he was, so there were some cool things about it, too. Life with Dad on the NASCAR circuit was an awesome experience for Junior, and one of the highlights was the camaraderie shared among the racing families. Back in those days, all the drivers, crews, and everybody stayed in the hotels on the beach, so we was in the pool all week. I remember falling off a high dive one time, and I think I killed myself, but... uh, just being around in those hotels and seeing everybody you know you'd have drivers in the pool after practice and uh that was cool you know for those guys to 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 be able to do that and um seemed like it was just us there you know just the families but um you know it's changed quite a bit now we don't it ain't nothing like that anymore but that was pretty cool everybody kind of hanging around the beach um when they weren't at the racetrack. Junior attended as many races as he could through the early years, but the clash he never missed was the one right in his own backyard at Charlotte Motor Speedway. I grew up here and went to all the races here when I was a little kid. Some of the first memories of being at a, you know, a mile and a half racetrack, that's here at Charlotte. So, you know, once I used to go to the dirt tracks with dad when I was very small, but the first memories of being actually at a cup event were here. And uh, the the Uries and the Earnhardt family would park up on the hill of the of the road course, um, about the tallest peak of the uh, elevation there. And we had these plastic cars. Uh, Richard Petty and Kelly Yarborough would roll them down the hill um, of the road course and uh, spend the whole weekend there uh, watching Dad race it, uh, Xfinity race and the Cup race. 
Father and son race weekend junkets became more commonplace as time marched on. For Richard Childress Racing Flying Aces fuel man Chocolate Myers, Junior's presence at the track made those weekends even more special. Well, you know, back in the early days, uh, it, it was kind of funny because we had certain races that we would know that Dale Jr. would be there most of the time. Uh, Pocono in, in the summertime, that was kind of like a summer vacation uh, that they could come up. Uh, of course, when we got to Martinsville and in, 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 in Rockingham and certainly Charlotte, uh, if it was when school wasn't there, uh, we would get an opportunity to see him then and, and he would come hang out. Uh, and, and look, he was Dale's kid, so we picked on him and, 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 and had a lot of fun. You know what I mean? It, it was really cool. And to now listen to him tell some of the stories about being there and, and being around us and how much that meant to him, it, it, it's pretty daggone special. For NASCAR Hall of Famer Mark Martin, Dale Jr. was the consummate driver's son, sporting a mellow demeanor and hungry for knowledge about NASCAR racing. He was, uh, you know, around me, he was quiet. You know, when I was around and saw him, he was he was quiet and reserved. And I'm, I'm sure his dad made sure that he behaved. I never saw him uh, very wild uh, acting up as a kid. So... You know, he, uh, and, and you saw him, you know, coming along and start driving and start, uh, but he was always very, very respectful of uh, the the drivers that came before him. He was always really respectful of me and, and uh, tried to learn everything that he could uh, from me when he was first getting started in the Xfinity Series and all. And um, he's just treated the sport uh, with tremendous respect through his school years junior participated in a few other sports including a stint on the oak ridge military school jv basketball team at just three and a half feet tall junior struggled a bit against the lankier competitors but he steadfastly continued to play partially due to some ulterior motives i scored two points that year in military school i sat on the bench a lot uh, being the smallest guy, I didn't have any skill. I only played. Uh, I only played because you got to leave leave campus for the road games. And being able to leave, even for a day in military school, was a, an amazing vacation. Just to be able to leave for a few hours, because you'd go after the game, you get pizza or whatever. You just didn't have those kind of luxuries being on being on campus. So that was pretty neat. And uh, but I had fun. We you know we we, we played basketball at home and. We have a small little group of guys that get together and play, but I'm not not skillful at all, but uh, it's fun. It's a good way to you know, get some energy and exercise. Junior's basketball career wasn't totally void of success. He did score one goal, but unfortunately can't recall the visual. I threw it up with my eyes closed. The only way I knew it went in, because Kelly and everybody that was there, maybe the 10 or 12 people that were there were screaming when it went in. So I knew it you know, went in, but I never saw it. Some guy was jumping at me, and, and I was just like, closed my eyes and threw it up. So uh, it was it was rough back then, but but it was uh, you know a lot of good memories, a lot of fun, thinking about just being able to practicing and being on a team. I, I hadn't played much organized sports at at that point in my life, so that was pretty fun. Plus, like I said, being able to get out of, you know, military school for a day was was, was great, being able to see the outside world. <laughs> According to Junior's mother, Brenda, Dale dabbled in a few stick and ball activities, but it was clear racing was his passion. Um, he played a little soccer, and but mostly all he cared about was race cars. I mean, he wore out, set some matchbox cars. 
built his own racetracks. I mean, he, he loves football, and he did dabble in football, but not to any real extreme. There were no silver spoons for the young Earnhardts. Dale Sr. insisted that they follow the same path that he did as a youngster, working hard for everything received. When it was time to go racing, Junior had to roll up his sleeves and dive under the hood, as Chocolate Myers recalls. He, he didn't just give them stuff. He gave them an opportunity, and they made the best of the opportunity. You know, well, it wasn't like one of those deals where it was like, we're going to go late model racing. You guys just sit here. I'll have somebody to build the car. I'll have somebody to take it to the racetrack. No, you're going to help do it. And if, and if you participate in it, then then I'll I'll do the rest of it, but you've got to help on it. So I think that's the biggest part of it. From the perspective of Veteran Motor Racing Network pit reporter Winston Kelly, Sr.'s seemingly hard-nosed approach to his son's racing program was not unlike other father-son relationships and mentoring in the garage. I think his dad was tough on him. You know, Lee Petty was tough on Richard Petty. Dale Earnhardt Sr. was tough on him. He wanted to make sure that he worked at it to get it. And those who... those fathers in any business but especially in racing Bobby Allison was tough on Davey Allison it made him a better race car driver because he knew how the cars were built Dale Earnhardt Sr. the same way so I don't look at that as a bad thing I look at look at it as he was hard on him because he wanted him to be successful and knew that it couldn't just be given to him and I think Dale Jr. appreciates that now looking back on it. Whether at home or at the track, Dale Earnhardt Sr. steadfastly guided Junior with an ever-present flow of sage advice and high expectations to be the best that he could be. He was a lot of things to a lot of different people. You know, I just wanted to be, uh, it was, you know, he was so, uh, it was intimidating, you know, like they say. And uh, he was like that as a father when he was at home. Um, you wanted to please him all the time, make him happy, and uh, you wanted to whatever you did. You wanted to you wanted it to uh, you wanted it to somehow get a response from him, you know. So uh, I think uh, as I was growing up, um, you know, you tried to get get away and do your own thing and have fun as a kid, but at the same time, you wanted to make your, your parents proud, and, and you wanted to you sort of found your direction by listening to them inadvertently whether you wanted to or not they sort of helped you find whatever it is you want you wanted to achieve in life and uh, my dad was there to guide me in a lot of good directions that helped me out a lot and uh, I think that uh, I tried to uh, uh, I tried to you know have some of the same good uh, qualities that he had I felt uh, that I liked the qualities that I enjoyed about him. I tried to uh, emulate those best I could and tried to keep those qualities as well because I felt like it made him a good person. On occasion, the similarities between father and son turned out to be beneficial. I uh, flipped my S10 pickup truck driving to my mamaw's for family reunion on Christmas Day one time. Um, had to call dad. Actually didn't have cell phone back then probably only about uh, 18 years old, 19 years old. I was working at a dealership as a service mechanic. And my sister got me a CD player 
the kind that you plug the tape in, you know, and all that adapter. So that thing's laying in the passenger seat and I was fiddling with it, drove off the road, hit a driveway culvert, flipped over end over end and rolled a couple times. This, this couple that was driving toward me uh, had just gotten married that day or just gotten engaged. <clears throat> and so they stop and they're like, oh my God, that was incredible, man. Your truck was flipping and crazy. There's parts hanging in the trees and are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. Um, and then in a mere moment, it's like there's lines, there's a line of cars stopped in the road because my truck's laying there. And uh, so I go to each one asking if anybody had a cell phone. I got to about the fourth car and the lady's like, you need to sit down. You're in shock. I was like, I just want to call my dad. I need somebody to get here that I know and uh, help me with this situation. And I'm real young. Don't know exactly what the first thing I'm supposed to do. So I finally go, go to the next car. They got a phone. I called Dad. He's at Mammals in Kannapolis, and, and he drives out there. We were, I was five minutes from the farm property, so he goes and gets the rollback. Uh, he gets there with the policeman at the same time, and uh, we load it up. The policeman's like, you know, everything's good here. I'm just going to let you guys have it, so we take it back home. I thought he was going to be really mad, even though I was the one paying for the truck. Uh, I had financed it for five years. I had a $100 payment. Put myself in this great position financially. And I'd ruined it by flipping this truck, and um, but my insurance paid it. It was good. Uh, Dad laughed because he actually flipped his car when he was 18. So instead of being really mad and getting my butt chewed, we laughed about it. Um, and boy, did I learn my lesson. For Junior's first ride in a race car, the young NASCAR hopeful knew he'd have to buy it, build it, and maintain it on his own to gain the respect of the family and prove that he was serious and dedicated, as longtime associate Mike Davis remembers. That's the thing about it, is that people that think he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth just don't know the story. Dale didn't, he wasn't given anything. He wasn't given anything. Like, he literally had to go buy his first car with Carrie, his brother. They were living in a double wide. They bought the car knowing that their dad was going to be very angry about it and they did it anyway and of course they they either wrecked it or whatever but they they had to make ends meet and figure out like if i'm going to race um i'm gonna have to do it myself and to be honest with you from that street stock that they bought to the late models and there's so many countless stories that that uh, that would back this up dale jr was basically not only earning his way but he also was living with a mentality like, this is definitely going to be my last race. I was like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to continue doing this. So a lot of those same things that people that, you know, are trying to make it on their own feel, Dale was feeling that too. And then when you got into the, it was the Yuri. It wasn't Dale Earnhardt Sr. It was the Tony Yuri Sr. And maybe even Danny Earnhardt Jr. that started trying to plant the seed the big E that man, give the kid a chance you know I think Steve Park was moving on um, going to cup and you know they they decided like let's test Dale Jr. In, in a car and so they tested him and he of course he messed up everything he could mess up and said all right well that was my that was it that was it and so at that point that's when he started getting his his second chances and his third chances to prove himself and he and he, I don't think he realized it at the time but he was he was passing the test what he thought he was failing he was passing because I think a lot of the failures are part of the the testing. You know, how it's not that we expect you to pass; it's that we expect you to fail. How do you pick up the pieces and then come back? I think he was getting tested that whole time, but 
he, you know, Dale Earnhardt Sr., I never knew him. Um, but everything I've known about him is he didn't give anybody anything when it came to that. And especially his own. It's like he wanted his sons to have to earn it the way he did. So that, that's, that's what I know of it. I mean, there's a lot of stories like that. And, um, you know, that's where I, I, w- I would get very defensive. It's people that say that, you know, Dale Jr. was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And I honestly get defensive when people say that about Jimmy Johnson because people that know that uh, Jimmy Johnson's upbringing, he was very blue-collar upbringing himself. He didn't have money. All these kids these days have money. None of these, Dale didn't have money. Jimmy Johnson didn't have money. So they had to earn it. You know, and then when he got the ride, obviously he did get breaks uh, when he got this Xfinity ride, um, Bush Series. Then he did get the lucky breaks, and he doesn't discount that at all. By hook or by crook, Junior's racing career came alive in 1991 as the youthful newcomer started running late model stock cars at regional short tracks like Myrtle Beach Speedway, Concord Speedway, North Wilkesboro, and South Boston. Working on the car during the week and racing on weekends, Junior put on the marketing hat and lined up his first sponsors, Mom and Pops and Sundrop. His first race win came on August 20th, 1994 at Myrtle Beach Speedway, and it was there that he found a strong connection with his crew chief, Gary Harkin. He was perfect. He was like a grandfather to me. It broke my heart when I had to separate from him. We ran at Myrtle Beach in Florence, South Carolina. We kept his car. We kept the cars I ran in his shop uh, near Paisley, South Carolina, Marshville. So I drive. I worked at the dealership. So I'd get done working at the dealership and drive to Marshville and sleep with sleep at Gary's house, and then get up and go race on the weekends. And um, my dad offered me this deal that was too good to be true. I already I lost I lost my job at the dealership. Went to work on Kelly's late models, building her cars. And Dad gave me an opportunity to bring my cars up to Mooresville, where I lived for one final season in the, in the late models. <clears throat> and I thought, you know, I needed to be able to do a, work on my own cars and understand how they, how they worked. Gary said he wasn't going to drive that hour to work every day. So it was a heartbreaker and a real difficult uh, decision to make uh, because he'd become like a grandfather to me. Uh, but I had to get my cars up where I was so I could be around them all the time and work on them more often and sort of understand the mechanics of motorsports and how a car works and how it's put together. And, Losing him meant I had to set the thing up, so I, I struggled with that, learning. But it was a crash course, you know, and, and trying to understand how the cars work. So I had to do a lot of that on my own. But he had instilled in me how to talk, how to treat people. Um, I'll tell you a story. We were putting a decal on the hood, and we had these giant mom-and-pops logos, right? So when I started, there were four of us, and when I finished, it was just me. I got done with this decal. had bubbles all in it. Terrible go outside and Gary and two of the other guys that were there were just volunteers they were sitting there eating a pack of nabs and drinking a soda and I was like what the heck why'd y'all leave he goes you run us out of there I said you need to learn how to treat people because I'd been bickering at them a whole time putting that decal down and so Gary had taught me how to treat people with respect he was a perfect you know mentor for me I, he was uh, he came along right at the right time Veteran Motor Racing Network announcer Alex Hayden remembers well the mid-90s era and how Dale Jr. and sister Kelly, racing at local short tracks, became a part of his broadcasting career. Back in 1996, I was making audition tapes to try to send in, and 
to, to MRN to try to get a job doing this stuff. And I would go to Myrtle Beach Speedway to sit in the grandstands with a tape recorder to call a race. And uh, he would be in the field running a, a late model race. As a matter of fact, he and his sister both were, were in the race. I still have the entry lists at my home uh, of those particular events. Um, I go to Concord Motorsports Park over there just outside of Charlotte and, and do some late model racing over there, and he'd be a part of the field. So, yeah, it's uh, I had the, the chance to meet him and kind of work with him a little bit when I was a PA announcer at Short Tracks when he was running late models. After cutting his teeth in late models, Junior finally got his break and set his sights on the big leagues. Dad came to me in the offseason in 96 and uh, going into 97 said, "We our sponsor's gone. I don't have a lot of money to run your late model. You're going to get about uh, eight races if, if, if possible. And, uh, uh, but we, we are going to run you in, in a, in a uh, couple of Xfinity races because we did okay at, at uh, Myrtle Beach that weekend. 90, uh, 96, I think. So I ran, uh, I ran real. I got one. I got to race at Michigan in the Xfinity car and ran in the top ten. I got a call from Ed Whitaker to run his car a couple races at Fontana and at uh, Bristol. I called a couple other teams, but they said no. And I ran my late model about eight times and didn't do anything memorable in it. And uh, I had a car that we. I had a car that I'd bought and. Uh, had a lot of trouble with it. Uh, that white car had Sickens and Gargoyle sponsorship on it. We were breaking stuff, falling off of it all the time, and we just couldn't keep the motor in it and all that. So we qualified good, just wouldn't finish races with it. Finally wrecked it at St. Louis. Um, so, but I didn't, you know, I didn't hear anything at the end of the season about what I was, you know, I didn't hear anything from my dad, which I never expected to. Um, he didn't see him a lot, you know, he's busy. And, uh, Everybody I was calling had deals and didn't have any interest in me. Um, I called Jane Finch, and he says it might have been the biggest mistake he made in his career. You had to ask him about that one. <laughs> they had a they Myrtle, he was switching around drivers. He had Dale Shaw and a couple of the boys moving. He's not in between drivers. I think uh, I don't know what happened, but Purvis was out of his car and he was doing something different with everybody. And I said, "Why don't you let me run the car at the beach?" And he's like, "I got. I'm gonna do this other deal." And, so, I uh, I was just I had no idea what to do, and I walked in the shop. It was after New Year's, and that car was sitting there with my name on the roof, and Tony Senior and them were standing there and laughing and grinning, and I was like, "Man, this is a joke. This is bullshit. That's that's not even funny, man." Because I was I thought it was a real joke. There was no there was nothing there was no um, way in hell that I thought I had a idea that I would get opportunity to drive that car and um, uh, they were like it ain't no joke it's it's real it's you know I was like what and I was like why do you, how did I you know how did I get into the conversation and Tony senior said I told him if he's gonna spend his own because he was I think dad was spending half of the sponsorship was his own money AC Delco was covering the other part and uh, he's like I told him if he's gonna spend his own money he ought to spend it on his son why not you know give him a shot so Basically, Tony Sr. went to bat for me and told told Dad that, you know, we'll take Junior and uh, me and Tony Jr. will make a driver out of him, and that's what happened. 
As race fans often do with second and third generation drivers, many wonder about the similarities and differences between father and son. For retired crew chief and Fox Network analyst Larry McReynolds, the parallels are sometimes striking. When I listen to in-car radio transmission of Dale Earnhardt Jr. and I close my eyes, I go, oh my gosh, it's like deja vu all over again. You know, he he knows what he wants to say. Sometimes it doesn't really come out like he's trying to say it. Uh, you know, there was a the situation with, with Dale Sr. one time. I don't remember where we were. We were at at Rockingham, uh, and, you know, I was giving him his lap times. And he finally came on the radio and said, quit giving me those lap times. I'm doing it, going as fast as I can every lap. I don't need any lap times. Okay, I won't give you lap times. So 10 or 12 laps went by. Hey, you going to talk to me on this radio, or what are you doing? I hadn't heard from you in about 10 or 12 laps. It's like, what does this guy want? I go back to a few weeks ago. We know that the 88 team has had some, some issues with, with loose lug nuts, loose wheels. And Dale Earnhardt Jr., before the pit stop, the caution came out. He said, guys, I don't care how long I stay in there. Make sure all those lugs are tight. Well, they did. He lost five or six positions. By the time he got to the end of pit road, he was raising cane because they lost all these positions on pit road. It's like this guy is just like his dad on the radio. You know, he just wants everything to be good. He wants everything to be right. Uh, you know, I think a, a little bit like his dad, you know, he, he maybe is his – not on top of exactly what the car's doing or what he wants. He'll just get out there and drive it as hard as it can be driven. And I've even told Greg Ives, I said, you know what? Uh, the other thing uh, is that I see some similarities is on qualifying day. We know his dad was not a great qualifier. And we know that Dale Jr. is not a great qualifier. And I saw poor Greg Ives. It was at a race, I think, last year. And I could tell... It, it was just bugging him to death. And I went up, I put my arm around him. I said, I'm telling you, you're not going to get an Earnhardt to qualify up front. I said, now, when they drop that green flag on race day, you're going to be really happy he's buckled in that race car. But if you're trying to get him to qualify up front every single week, you're going to become an old ball man just like I am. But when it comes to driving style, former DEI crew chief Slugger Labby notes how the two Earnhardts are decidedly different. Dale Jr., uh, he's not done growing up yet. You know, when I worked with Dale Sr., he was grown up and he was the legend. He was the, the man everyone wanted to be at and he was the man everyone was scared of, you know. And uh, Dale Jr., I think, is different. He'll race you clean, race you hard, but he won't wreck you like Big E. You know, I was at Bristol in 1996 when Terry Labonte, I was the car chief on that car, when uh, Big E spun us out off turn four and we won the race going backwards. You know, uh, that's what you expected out of Dale Earnhardt. You can predict that out there on Dale Earnhardt. And with Dale Jr., I, I don't think you could ever predict him wrecking you on purpose, you know, to pass you. He would race you clean because he it's about respect with him. And uh, it's just different mentalities, different mindsets, but a lot of it was perception of Big E was the badass. And Dale Jr. is just the kid that's going to race you hard and, hey, let's go have a beer after the race and, and have a good time. So it's just they're different in each other, but it's also the time, time gap of the two generations. As Junior's career blossomed under the DEI banner, the opportunity to hobnob with his father about their collective on-track escapades presented itself. But they rarely took advantage of the opportunity to discuss competition, and conversations more likely drifted to life itself. Me and my dad never talked racing. I, I mean, uh, we just didn't. And 
you know, I wouldn't go up and ask him about that unless I wanted to upset him. Um, I hated it. You know, it was something that you were comp- you were used to seeing Dad doing, and uh, you didn't like. I didn't like seeing nobody do it to him. He was my hero, and uh, didn't like seeing my hero getting moved out of the way like that. Um, so it's not a race that I like <laughs> to think about. But I certainly, um, knowing my dad, uh, it, it's nothing I would have brought up in conversation in the rental car on the ride back to the airport for sure. Um, yeah, but we not, we didn't talk racing a lot. We just I don't know. We just didn't. I mean, there wasn't a lot of opportunity. We only got. I was running late models for four years, never seeing him. I uh, don't think he ever saw me race late models during the mid-90s. And then when we got into the Infinity Series, I had two years of that and one year in Cup, and then he was gone. So we had three years, uh, but just not a lot, not really any conversation about uh, driving or advice about it. He was more worried about me keeping my head on straight, keeping focused, than how to get into the corner. Um, it was more about how to be outside the car and keep it on. You know, everything was happening so fast, and we were having so much success. I think he was just making sure that I wasn't gonna be careless or, uh, you know, be an idiot outside the car. So uh, we talked about that all the time. You know, getting up on time and you know, <laughs> not sleeping till noon, and being on time for appearances and all that stuff. As the 1997 NASCAR Bush Series Tour came to a close, Junior's career was about to take a major turn. Teaming up with crew chief Tony Urey Sr., the duo would go on to dominate the next two seasons. Join us next week as we continue Junior's journey through the 1998 and 1999 NASCAR Bush Series championship effort. Until next week, I'm Susie Armstrong. Junior's Journey is a production of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. Remember to visit MRN.com for all the latest news and information. Junior's Journey is produced under an exclusive license with NASCAR. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network. From fueling NASCAR champions on the track for over 20 years to innovating 94 octane, the highest octane on the market. Performance is what Sunoco does. All Sunoco fuel at the pump meets the same top tier standards as the fuel used in NASCAR. Money's back here for Ryan Blaney, four tires with Sunoco fuel. From the track to your tank, you can trust Sunoco to help your vehicle perform at its peak.